Welcome to the Cell Intel podcast, where we explore how single cell and spatial analysis methods are being adopted and are accelerating discoveries in life science research. Hello, and welcome to Cell Intel from 10x Genomics. My name is Neil Weingarten, and I will be one of your co-hosts today. I'm here with my colleague, Daphne Cooper. Thanks, Neil. So today's episode is called Beyond the Transcriptome, Single Cell Epigenomics, and we have a very special guest with us today, Mathieu Lupien. And so a little bit about Mathieu. He is a senior scientist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center, as well as an associate professor at the University of Toronto, and he holds a cross-appointment with the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research. After earning his PhD from McGill University in Montreal in 2005, Mathieu completed postdoctoral training as an Era of Hope Fellow at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center at Harvard Medical School. Mathieu then joined the faculty at the Dartmouth Medical School where he was director of the Quantitative Epigenomics Laboratory prior to joining Princess Margaret Cancer Center in 2012. Mathieu's research focused on chromatin and the epigenetics of cancer has pioneered the study of the non-coding genome and accelerated the development of chromatin and epigenetic-based precision medicine against cancer. He has been the recipient of numerous awards recognizing the impact and contributions of his research. And just to name a few, he is a recipient of the Young Investigator Award from the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research, of the Cancer Canadian Cancer Society Bernard and Francine Dorval Award for Excellence, and is a two times recipient of the Till and McCullough Discovery of the Year Award. Thank you so much for being here, Matthew. Welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be here. The title of this episode, Beyond the Transcriptome, really spoke to me because as when I used to do research, I was very gene expression focused, just looking at differential gene expression and looking at pathway analysis from those genes that were differentially regulated. And for our listeners who are in the same bucket as myself, who are just less familiar with epigenetics, what is epigenetics and why is it important in cancer? Epigenetics and, and gene. Okay, so you bring in the gene-centric perspective, which is very interesting. So I'll start with this. So it's correct that a lot of our research and upbringing as scientists has focused on genes because of the literature being so heavily rich in information that draws from understanding how genes function. Now, ever since the completion of the Human Genome Project, well, what we realized is that despite their important role in, in defining phenotypes, genes in the end only account for a very small fraction of all the DNA sequences that's found in the human genome. So it's typically around 1.5% of the genome that's reported as being encoding, i.e. within a gene exon. What epigenetics has enabled over the years, I think at least in recent years, and I use the term epigenetics in a very broad way, I'll actually be more specific. I'll, I'll talk about the chromatin, right? Because epigenetics is often referred to as many different things. And I think that's an issue with the terminology. And But for the heart of the matter, what I am deeply concerned about or studying is really the chromatin which takes into account the DNA sequence that's found within our genome in the context in which it's found within each and every single cell of our body, which is that it's not naked, but instead it's found in a partnership with specific proteins known as histones for the most part that actually come together to form like an octomer complex around which DNA can be wrapped 
about 147 base pairs of DNA to be specific, and that forms the nucleosome, which is the basic unit of chromatin. And over the years, what scientists such as myself and others have been able to show is that studying the chromatin can indeed reveal the function of the human genome, including what goes on with regards to gene, but also opened up completely a new search space within the non-coding space, identifying by looking at the chromatin different functional elements of the genome that are non-coding. To give you a quick example, for instance, we're in a position by studying chromatin to identify cis-regulatory elements, such as promoters and enhancers, which work together as the light switches and the dimmers that more or less control how much an individual gene will be expressed. And so these non-coding features could only be revealed by truly looking at chromatin. So you've had a couple recent papers, so one in cell stem cell that looked at the genetic determinants of long-term self-renewal in hematopoiesis, as well as one in eLife that looked at the heterogeneity of uh, stem cell populations in glioblastoma. And from what I understand, these two reports are your first attempts at using single-cell attack technologies or methods. So can you speak to your experience of adding single-cell attack to your analysis repertoire and what that transition was like? Absolutely. So when looking at the chromatin, there are different ways to study the chromatin. I was amongst the first to start looking at chip, uh, chip on chip. So back in the days when we would be performing chromatin IP and then measuring the signal using arrays and then chip sequencing to try to better understand what the nature of the chromatin can look like. And at that time, we were specifically interested in figuring out what were the protein DNA interactions within chromatin beyond just the nucleosomes, but as well in better characterizing the relationship between nucleosomes and DNA based on the flavors of post-translational modifications nucleosomes can acquire, because that influences the state of the chromatin. You can have chromatin in various states, starting from compressed chromatin, where typically the DNA within it is unaccessible, and it's typically silent, it's typically off, such as when a gene is turned off, same thing when a promoter is off or an enhancer is off and so on and so forth. And then you can have the chromatin in a different state where it's accessible, where nucleosomes are further apart from each other. And this can be picked up by multiple means. Back in the days, we would do this by chip, looking for specific post-translational modifications to the histones. Now, over the years, there's a series of different methodologies that came about to actually not so much focus on the histone modifications, but instead specifically look at chromatin accessibility. So this started off with DNA's one hypersensitivity, for instance. Back in the days, we also had another approach that was called FAIR or FAIR-seq, which ultimately has been a little bit less used, let's say, than, than DNA's hypersensitivity. And then more recently, ATAC-seq. And so all these assays are fabulous because they give you an immediate perspective of exactly what the state of the chromatin is. Either it's accessible or compressed. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so we've been exploring ATAC-seq, amongst other assays, to really better understand which parts of the DNA, which parts of the genome are accessible and therefore on in one cell type versus another. And this is where we can really find ways to identify the genetic determinants of a specific phenotype. What I mean by this is that for a phenotype to arise, the DNA sequence has to be contributing to that phenotype. And so if the chromatin is accessible, that tells us which DNA sequences are contributing to the phenotype, okay, in a positive manner. And so 
we're committed. Like we love chromatin accessibility. We love ChipSeq for histone modifications as well. But chromatin accessibility and the advent of ATAC-seq has really opened up the field because the assay is so amazing. It can be done very quickly. It's extraordinarily simple to run. It can run on small amounts of cells. And we thought we were done with it. But then the single cell technology came out, which actually allowed us to start looking at chromatin accessibility, but at the single cell resolution, as some would say, at true resolution. And so we decided to explore the extent to which that resolution would actually bring a benefit to our analysis. And so since we were a little bit cautious of that new technology, as we always are, when a new technology comes in, you want to make sure that you look at it from a robust perspective. In the two manuscripts you mentioned that were published in 2020, what we did was first identify model systems that we could study where we had the means to purify subpopulation from our tissue of origin. So we focused on brain tumor, glioblastoma in one case. We focused on the hematopoietic uh, system in the second manuscript. And what we had in both instances was the ability to purify through either cell surface markers, such as we did in hematopoiesis, or through culture-based selection media, populations that had unique features that we could functionally validate independently of any other assay. In the blood hematopoietic lineage, we had over 13 populations purified that we could profile by bulk ataxic. In GBM, there are specific populations known as cancer stem cells that populate the glioblastoma tumor. And so we had the opportunity there as well to characterize purified glioblastoma stem cells. And we did this there again through bulk ataxic. And this gave us the opportunity to generate top quality signatures of chromatin accessibility in purified populations where the sample size was not an issue for the, from the technical aspect of the assay. And then we said, great, now that we have these clean signatures, we can start mining single cell data to really assess the quality of the single cell data and exactly be in a position to assess, in some instances, the extent of heterogeneity that may lie within a system, or as well, whether transition from one cell state to another are abrupt or gradual. And so in the blood system, we conducted single cell ataxic in purified stem enriched population, but not as enriched as our clean populations. In GBM, we bluntly just perform single cell ataxic on a tumor, on actually a collection of different tumors. And then what we were in a position to do in that setting was to use our top quality signatures and overlay them on top of the single cell data to mine the single cell data and learn from the single cell data based on the quality of the measurements we had from the bulk samples. So that was our strategy. And so those two manuscripts, not only do they use the single cell attack seek technology, but they clearly demonstrate the value of the assay in, the, in its ability to capture the signal that we actually could identify in purified populations. So this was a, actually a great experiment to conduct. Those two experiments, actually those two manuscripts were fabulous to showcase that indeed the assay is robust. We can use it to mine data that we would find if we were to work with just pure populations. I think in the cell stem cell manuscript, you talk about these hematopoietic stem cells had been profiled just with RNA sequencing, and you had a long-term and a short-term HSC that you were trying to compare to each other. And if you just compare them by differential gene expression, apparently there aren't actually that many changes. And so is this why you needed to take it into studying the chromatin accessibility? So that's definitely a point. So 
expression and chromatin accessibility are measurements that tend to be related to each other, but they are not mirror images of each other. And so the expression more or less indicates what the state, what the identity of the cell is at the time it's harvested. And mm -hmm. so, for instance, it's well established that gene expression will change according to environmental exposure. Like for instance, in breast cancer, you treat it with estrogen, like you treat a breast cancer cell with estrogen, there's a response. That's not a change in cell identity, but that's purely a simple response to the environmental stimulus. And we can talk about many other examples of that flavor. And so gene expression is highly dependent on the time and the condition in which the sample is being harvested. Chromatin accessibility is indicative of the potential of a given cell to, to reach one fate or another, or to respond one way or another to a change in environmental stimuli. And so the concept is that there will be some level of correlation, but very different. Two more things to consider when looking at the chromatin. First and foremost, the number of regions you identify looking at chromatin accessibility across the genome specific to one cell type as opposed to another is in the hundreds of thousands. And because you are dealing with an enhancers and promoters and anchors of chromatin interactions and other types of such cis-regulatory elements, each of them typically being approximately two, 300 base pairs in size. And so for any individual gene to be expressed, you need to have at least one promoter and you typically have a collection of distal regulatory elements, distal enhancers that can range from like 10, 20, 30, and 40. So you can have a wide range. And so this is in contrast to expression where you're looking at the expression over a smaller subset of transcripts. Now there's ways to improve this, but you're still talking about a smaller subset of transcripts. And so the dynamic range from which you can look to see differences within uh, two samples is much, much greater with chromatin accessibility. The last point that I'll raise is again, if you're on track to identify the genetic determinants of a given phenotype, like what are the DNA sequences contributing to a phenotype, you'll get that by measuring the DNA. And so you, when you look at chromatin accessibility, you are measuring the DNA. The, the peak intensity, the signal intensity of accessibility tells you how often a given piece of DNA is accessible in your sample of choice compared to another sample of choice. And that frequency matters, right? Because it is a reflection of the extent to which that DNA sequence can make a contribution. Like by analogy, since I work in the cancer field, I like to look at what we do when we look for mutations, what we do to find mutations that matter in a tumor versus passenger mutations, right? So to discriminate drivers from passenger mutations, we pay attention to the frequency, right? We sequence a given sample and we ask, how often do we see a given mutation present or absent in that tumor? And if it's above a certain threshold, we say, yes, this is a, this is a, uh, a mutation that indeed has a level of enrichment in that given tumor, and we can even use it to track populations. And so what we're doing here with chromatin accessibility is simply flipping the y-axis, legend. Instead of looking at frequency of mutations, we're looking at frequency of accessibility. I've got a question. With all of this information that you have, people can relate, I think, relatively easy to the idea of if you find a misregulated gene, the end product of that might be a potential therapeutic target or, or something like that. When it comes down to looking at chromatin accessibility and structure, how does that help educate potential therapeutics downstream? So this is a question that I, I've been spending a lot of time focusing on because you are correct that there is a desire to look at the genes, but I think it's a distorted desire. The desire is actually to identify a protein 
right. because all of our drugs are against proteins. None of our drugs really are against genes. So the concept is that we're going, our goal, the goal of the scientific community in trying to find a treatment that will benefit the patient based on whatever profile we do in a tumor is to find the key protein of interest, right? And the genetics approach is one where you introduce mutations, right, everywhere and anywhere, and then you figure out what plays a role in your disease onset or type of interest. And there's been a lot of focus in doing so with genes, which is great because then you find a gene that encodes a protein and that protein might be a good target. So now if we look at chromatin accessibility, could we find those same genes? The answer is yes. Their promoters, for instance, based on chromatin accessibility will be accessible. Distal cis-regulatory elements that are nearby that play a role in influencing the level of activity of that promoter will also be accessible. And so we've developed means, for instance, there's the, and we're not the only ones, there's a large community that has been developing means to actually try to make sense of what we find from chromatin accessibility and link it to a given gene target so as to be able to rank genes as most likely being expressed and therefore producing a protein that could be a potential drug target. Now, in the process, we have to be careful not to put forward this guilt by association concept, because when looking at the non-coding genome, sometimes we're like, what is the role of that non-coding element? Is it just regulating the closest gene or is it regulating something that's further away? And so there's been great work by the community to try to come up with good strategies to find the downstream target gene in an effective manner to try to minimize the biases, but that is still a challenge. And so I took a different approach. I mean, I took that approach as well, but I also took a separate approach which is that I acknowledge that a DNA sequence that's found in accessible chromatin in the non-coding space, if indeed it's reflecting an active cis-regulatory element, if it's reflective of a cis-regulatory element that is on, then that cis-regulatory element, its function is to bind proteins, right? It binds to transcription factors, it binds to DNA polymerase, RNA polymerase, and so on and so forth. So the approach we've been pushing for is instead of looking downstream, of these individual regions that are accessible, look upstream. And so what we do is that we mine the DNA sequence to try to find DNA sequences associated with specific factors that are the only ones able to bind that DNA sequence. And that has proven to be extraordinarily effective. So just as an example, for instance, if we were to profile the chromatin accessibility in the breast cancer model, specifically a luminal breast cancer that we know is dependent on the estrogen receptor for its growth and for oncogenesis, one of the motifs you'll find commonly enriched with an accessible chromatin is the ERE, the estrogen responsive element, which is a specific DNA sequence uniquely recognized by the estrogen receptor. And so that would rank the estrogen receptor at the, at the top of our list of candidate drug targets. We do the same thing in prostate cancer. What do we find? The ARE, the androgen responsive element. So that sequence that's recognized by the, the androgen receptor, sorry, and therefore ranking it as a top target for therapy. And as you're probably very aware of, I took examples where the validation is pretty nice. In breast cancer, uh, endocrine therapy that specifically targets the estrogen receptor is extraordinarily effective. You can engage with uh, survivors that are 20 years plus. Uh, in prostate cancer, there it's endocrine therapy that specifically targets the activity of the androgen receptor. So I think there's a huge benefit in moving forward to finding targets by looking upstream, not only downstream of accessible sites. That's fantastic. Thanks very much. I could, if I can add one more thing, okay? Of Let's course push you can. this beyond. So we've been keen at using chemical agents, right? We want to have yeah. this, this chemical, this drug, this chemical probe to target a protein. 
Now, with the advent of CRISPR technologies and talent technologies and our ability to map regions of the DNA, of the genome, that are uniquely essential, uniquely accessible, uniquely on in one tissue type as opposed to another, I think we can effectively consider now at this stage maximizing our ability to find these non-coding regions that are in accessible chromatin and start targeting those directly with such technologies as the CRISPR and Talon technologies to negate either the extent to which the chromatin is accessible. So we can use, like for instance, a CRISPR DCAS9 activators or inhibitor models, or simply uh, change the sequence at that site so that it can no longer be interacting with the transcription factor that it would normally do. So this is, I think, a space that we need to investigate further in the years to come. That's fantastic. Thanks very much, Matthew. So we wanted to kind of also give our listeners a little bit of a, an introduction as to how to access these sorts of technologies. And so just for everybody that's listening, I had the pleasure of working with Mathieu for several years before I joined 10X. And I know that having brought ATAC to Toronto, really, you became a very popular person. Everybody was looking to, to work with you. And then you were the first adopter of single cell ATAC that I know of in, in Toronto. And can you just give us a little bit of, of an idea as to how, having been an early adopter of a lot of these approaches, how have you handled the numerous collaboration requests and, and these sorts of things that typically come out of that? This is a great question, Neil. So you're correct, as to no surprise, right? This type of technology, like the value of looking at chromatin accessibility and looking for what I call chromatin variants, which are the equivalent of genetic variants, but from a chromatin standpoint, uh, is, is definitely appealing. People recognize the value of, of doing that type of research. And so when we started using ATAC-Seq and then re when we recently moved towards the single cell technologies, there was definitely a huge interest in the community. And I therefore had requests to collaborate left and right on topics that I'm not necessarily an expert at. And there's a bandwidth that I could deal with that at one point was too much. I was fortunate enough to work in an institution that has a very strong genomic score, as Neil having been there in the past, like through the interactions we had while you were here and subsequently, we had the opportunity to develop a clean partnership, a very feed-forward partnership between the Princess Margaret's genomic score and the ongoing research and development on assays that was taking place in my lab. So what I rapidly did was establish an initiative focused on epigenetic assays within the genomic score to grow the capacity of the genomic score to offer the services to as many as possible. And so we trained some of the members of the Princess Margaret's genomic scores as we were learning technologies. And then after they were trained, they would themselves do some R&D on their own. We would do more R&D on our own based on our needs, and we would keep exchanging information. And so to date, the Princess Margaret's genomic score offers routinely a taxic at the bulk level for just about every given cell type that you're interested in, tissue type that you're interested in, across a wide spectrum of different preservation conditions. And similarly, they also offer single cell technologies, whether it be the single cell ATAC, whether it be the multi-ohm technology. And again, there, we've kept our partnership growing where we keep trying to adapt those technologies to tissue samples that are more and more difficult to work with. And as soon as we have some protocols that work, we share our best practices with the genomic score such that they can engage with the community abroad within the Princess Margaret, across Toronto, across Canada, and even abroad, they're open for business. One of the things that often is intimidating to early users 
beyond the sample prep, which you've already talked about and, and passing on those tips, is just the wealth of data that is obtained from these types of assays. And in a particular case like this, obviously you've got your own research interests. How do you deal with the data? And then how would somebody that perhaps that you've enabled through the core deal with all of that information as well? So we've been fortunate enough that typically within my group, there's a good computational team that will explore whenever we bring in a new assay. So right now we're dealing with this with the single cell multi-ohm assay, where we have a team in-house that explores all the different softwares that are out there that pays attention to the latest that comes from left and right, like academic. The academic sector is booming with new softwares to analyze, for instance, the multi-ohm and the single cell attack seek data set. So we have a team in my group that looks at this. And as soon as we do identify proper pipelines for analysis, we don't shy away from making them accessible to others as long as they have some level of computational expertise. At the same time, we try to transmit the information as much as possible to the PM Genomics Core. The PM Genomics Core, for instance, offers a perfect suite of software analysis for the baseline QC. But there is at one point a need for a very detailed project-focused analysis, set of analysis that need to be done. And there, it's a balance. So we've, in the past, helped and ran the analysis ourselves. In other instances, collaborators will recruit trainees to their lab, and the trainees will come to my group and be trained for a certain amount of time. And then we'll go back with the expertise and also the network of people with whom to interact with. And so we try our best to help and assist because we acknowledge that there's both a technical aspect that needs to be addressed and that we've done very exhaustively with the genomics core, but there's also a computational need and there's still space to grow in that on that front. This is fantastic because you're really talking about the power of everybody doing what works well right? And you're bringing in, you're the early adopter of the technology, then you enable your colleagues to get going through a core, another core, the bio, I know the high performance computing core at Princess Margaret then can do a lot of that initial data processing. It really is a great success story for, for how to bring these things on, which I think is fantastic. You know what that music means? It's time for Little Gems. Just a reminder that Little Gems are pithy little segments when we take a break to tell you about some news from 10X Genomics or dish up something fun to do. Today, we're keeping with the theme of epigenomics to tell you about some new software for your data analysis. Cell Ranger Arc version 2 and Cell Ranger Attack version 2. These are our software pipelines that will take the data off of the sequencer and produce all of the output files that you will need for your data analysis. With these new versions, you can capture more attack data from your experiments, even the ones you already ran. You can improve peak calling with our new algorithm, you can experience up to four times faster runs, and you can perform multi-sample analysis with an added agar function. To learn more about our solutions for simultaneously profiling chromatin state and gene expression in the same cell, go to 10xgenomics.com and search on the product tab for single cell multiome attack plus gene expression. Also, we have our first chance to win a 10X Genomics water bottle. We want to hear from you. So go to 10xgenomics.com forward slash little dash gems to answer our question by August 30th, 2021. Here is the question. What is your idea for a future episode on the Cell Intel podcast? Anyone in the US or Canada can win by random drawing. Again, the website is 10xgenomics.com forward slash little dash gems. 
super basic question for you. So when you have, as Neil has brought up with chromatin accessibility, you have a lot of data. And so transcription factor binding motifs, as well as promoters, promoter regions, repressors, for example. And so when you're trying to identify your cell types, what do you find really useful? Is it looking at transcription factor binding motifs or is it looking at promoter accessibility or do you use them hand in hand? Oh, yeah. So this is a space that's ever changing. All right. One of the first discoveries that I've made in the field of impact was actually to showcase the extent to which looking at distal cis-regulatory elements was very powerful in discriminating subtypes. So we did this by comparing breast and prostate cancer. Over the years, people, because of chromatin, like the key is, depends on the assay you look at, right? So if you're specifically focusing on chromatin accessibility, you have to understand the data. Chromatin accessibility will give you a lot of signal from promoter will give you a lot of signal as well from distal cis-regulatory elements, enhancers, anchors of chromatin interactions. And there's a tremendous amount of information embedded within the data that allows you to discriminate all these different features. And so that you can actually partition the genome even within chromatin accessibility data. Just to give you an example, right? A promoter won't have a bell-shaped distribution in the accessibility over it. It will have a skewed distribution, which has to do with the intrinsic nature of where nucleosomes are positioned within promoters. Uh, a anchor of chromatin interaction, like a site that specifically is bound by CTCF, for instance, and there's a few more factors that behave the same way, such as ZNF143, which are involved in regulating the three-dimensional genome structure. We haven't talked about this, but the genome is not linear in our cells. It's folded and it's folded in an organized manner. So CTCF is one of the factors that helps in regulating that process. If you look at chromatin accessibility at CTCF site, it's a super sharp symmetrical peak, very high, very sharp. And so this is beautiful. And you can, from attack data, even look at nucleosome positioning and you'll see that the nucleosomes position around the CTCF sites are extraordinarily well symmetrical and conserved. It's, pretty, it's beautiful. Honestly, it's art within science. If you look at enhancers, which are not right CTCF bound, they will also have a symmetrical shape, but of lower intensity and broader distribution because there's more variability in the distance between the center of the accessible site and where the nucleosomes are. There's an enormous amount of information to mine and to date, most of the time, the way we look at the data is simply by stratifying the chromatin accessible sites as promoter or not. And in doing so, what the field has shown is that their cell type specificity is much greater when looking at the distal sites than it is when looking at the promoter sites. But I think we're still undermining the data, despite the fact that we're already moving forward and generating more of it. And so there's great opportunities for individuals to actually mine existing data to increase our resolution or ability to call differences purely based on a single readout, which is attack-seek, for instance, or single-cell attack-seek. So we really appreciate your time here. And I just wanted to, as we wrap up this great episode, you've got two wonderful papers that show the value of attack-seek. You had mentioned it a little bit in passing, but uh, I know that you're now looking very heavily at the new multiome assay that looks at both ATAC and RNA. And can you talk a little bit about what extra information that brings to what you're studying? Absolutely. So we're indeed transitioning towards the multiome as opposed to the single attack seek only assay. And, and we're doing this for a couple of reasons. The first one is that it gives us some, it gives us the attack signal. If it was just RNA plus something else, we wouldn't do it. 
because we are 100% committed to identifying the genetic determinants, whether they're mutant or wild type sequences, we don't care. We want to see which sequences are on and which sequences are off, and we'll be able to figure out if they're mutated or not from the attack data. And so we've moved forward with the, the multi-ohm assay because then we will still be able to get a clear map from the attack data. And then we'll be able to address the question that commonly comes up from the community, which is, what is, despite my focus and my interest in looking at the upstream component, whatever is binding the DNA sequence that's accessible, we can't uh, dismiss the importance of also looking downstream, this being commonly asked for by the community because the concept is that a given non-coding cis-regulatory element that's captured within ATAXIC is doing something. And so we need to find what that something is. But I'm fine looking upstream, but the single-cell RNA-seq will give us the downstream. And so as I'm approaching this, I also acknowledge that these are two assays run in parallel. It will provide for a very comprehensive coverage because we have to be still conscientious of the fact that based on chromatin accessibility, we don't typically have a direct readout of transcription. We can infer transcription, but we don't have a direct readout. So now we will. And running the two in the same cell, as opposed to having a sample, splitting it in two and then running half is a huge benefit because the we already know Again, as we were discussing earlier, that the signal from RNA is not 100% in agreement with the signal from ATAC. And so if we were to have a sample, homogenize it, split it in two and run ATAC-seq on one and run single-cell RNA-seq on the other, we would have a hard time pairing the populations called by single-cell RNA-seq with the populations called by single-cell ATAC-seq. Having both in hand eliminates that worry. We're going to be able to have a perfect alignment and we'll see how much they agree with each other. Fantastic. Daphne, do you want to do the uh, the closing honors? So Mathieu, it was an absolute pleasure having you on today. We, we want to thank you again. And so we've just learned so much from you and we really look forward to seeing all of the amazing research that comes out of your lab. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a real pleasure to engage with you as well. And hopefully some of what I've said will speak to your audience in a way that they'll reach out and, and ask me more questions because I'm always eager to even more educate the community that's out there. You can find more episodes of Cell Intel Podcast at 10xgenomics.com forward slash cell dash intel. Subscribe if you want to be notified about new episodes, have the opportunity to give some feedback, or participate in polling questions or trivia contests for a chance to win a goodie and have your name, institution, and research area mentioned on the air. If you liked our podcast, your friends probably will too, so let them know about us. Thank you for listening and keep seeking out the possibilities. Mm -hmm.